0: Um, this week it's time to face it and so Martin is going to come and speak to us uh, on that very subject. So Martin do please come. Well good afternoon everybody. What comes to mind is a story about a very famous preacher 500 years ago, one of the leaders of the Reformation, John Calvin. And he preached in a city called Geneva. He took, uh, he took the central cathedral when the Reformation came and the Catholics were moved on, and he preached week by week through books of the Bible. He'd do 20 or 30 talks in a row week by week And halfway through a series, there was a coup in the city council, and they closed his church and sent him into exile. Three years later, they reversed the decision and said, John Calvin, you can come back to Geneva. So three years later, he came to the same pulpit in the same church and he'd finished the 21st talk in his series of 40 on a particular book and without any comment he said let's start the 22nd talk three years had passed he just carried on now the gap is a little bit shorter in this case but I want to remind you that's all the way back in January. Can you remember January? It was a lovely peaceful month. The weather was beautifully mild. Do you remember that? And we thought there isn't really going to be much of a winter. Uh, Do you remember thinking that? Well, during January, I preached three times in this series on the kingdom of God the second coming and the resurrection of the body. And the next Sunday, there was such a big storm, we had to close our meeting. Do you remember that far back? Such a big storm, we closed our meeting. Then we managed to get back into the centre again and we brought in a visiting speaker called David Oliver who continued the series with a magnificent talk on present heaven, which many of you will remember with much appreciation but no sooner had David Oliver left than the first flood came. So we ended up in the URC and we had our Ukrainian friends scheduled that week. And I was due on the following week, but I gave way to Dave because of important things that we needed to discuss. So despite storm, flood, change of venue, and all the other unsettling things that have gone on in our world since then the truth of the word of God, as far as I'm concerned, is totally the same. The series continues. And we come to a talk that, to be honest, many pastors and leaders never actually give. We hesitate to describe or discuss the biblical doctrine of the final judgment. But we should not hesitate with anything in the word of God. But one reason we hesitate in the modern world is the mood in which our culture is set. I'm going to put up on the screen now a representation, sorry that the light isn't so good here, a representation of a millennial young person. Okay? Some of you are in that category. I'm certainly not. Now in our millennial culture, no one tells us what to believe. We work it out for ourselves. It comes from within. I can define my identity. I can define my sexuality. I can define my morals. And most of all, for our purposes today, I can define my religion. In fact, I'll have a bit of this and a bit of that I'll be a spiritual person and no one really tells me what it's going to be because it's what I think is true that really matters. Do you recognize any of those things? That's the mood of the modern world. And that mood is sometimes echoed in Christianity. So Christianity can follow that trend. And two ways that Christianity has followed that trend, first of all, is in what we describe as the prosperity gospel. God is here to fulfill your needs. That is his his, his number one agenda. Health, wealth and security and comfort are the primary things he's here to give you. This is what's commonly called the prosperity gospel and all of you will have at some time accessed teachers on the internet. There are plenty of them. Who promise, especially if you give into their ministry, that you are going to receive those blessings of God? That's a therapeutic gospel and it's a reflection of the culture of our age that it's so popular. But there's another therapeutic gospel that's out there, which is that God is there primarily to accept you, to understand you, just as you are. And in this version of Christianity, which is very commonplace in our nation, The focus is on the love of God, not on the justice of God. The cross is a sign of love, not the sign of reconciliation and dealing with profound problems in humanity. So with all these things in mind, let us build our foundations clearly on the text of the Bible. I'm going to start in a very famous place and you may or may not be able to read clearly what comes up on the screen because of the light's but you can listen to these texts read. John 3, verses 16 to 18, some of the most famous words of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, we focus on the bit about God's love bringing salvation. That's the thing that draws our attention. But notice, the risk is perishing. That's the risk. That's the risk of humanity, that we may somehow lose our life lose our future, lose our destiny, lose something even in eternity and come under condemnation according to this text. So believing in Jesus turns out to be spectacularly important. Spectacularly important. But what do we need to believe about Jesus? So many people will say, well, I believe in Jesus. He existed. He was a good guy. He had good morals. I follow his ways the best I can. What is it that we need to believe about Jesus? It's condensed in the most effective way probably anywhere in the New Testament in Romans 3, verses 23 to 25. 22 to 25. The righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. And this is the crucial bit. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So what we need to believe about Christ it's not just his historical reality. He's a great moral teacher. He's a great example to follow. We need to be saved. We need to believe that he died for us. That it was a necessary thing. Not just a sign of God's love, but it was necessary to solve a problem which Paul identifies in this text, which is that sin has infected the human race. It is like a virus. And a virus will affect some people more severely than others. And you know that from the current discourse about the virus the world is uh, is dealing with now. For some it will be a a minor thing apparently and for some it will be fatal. But that virus is a reality and sin is a reality that affects the human race in a way that's inescapable according to the New Testament. And the only escape is the atonement that Jesus bought. Do you believe that? That's the foundation of our Christian faith. Now this reality has really significant consequences, which we're going to press into in a way that very often is not done. Now let's go back to our culture for a moment. Okay, so everybody's so easy, don't judge me, I'm not going to judge you, let's all just live together, it's truth for you and truth for me, there's no absolute truth, whatever truth floats your boat is the truth that will do. That's what the mood appears to be. But you dig a little bit deeper, and you'll find that that's fairly superficial. Because deep down, almost everybody has a profound sense of justice. And accountability. It's just what issues we apply it to. Can I give you four examples where this easy come, easy go mood suddenly disappears in our modern culture? Let's take the four completely unrelated examples. Here's the first one. Sexual harassment of women. The Me Too movement. What do people feel about these guys like Harvey Weinstein who come up before the tribunals and the courts and they're found to be Guilty. There's a great mood. We need to bring these people to account. That's the mood of our culture. What about the Islamic terrorist who comes out of jail and recommits an offence in the UK as has happened recently? What do the people say? Justice, accountability, get them back in prison. What about political corruption in Westminster a few years ago? Do you remember that one? People were up in arms that our politicians taking all this money out the expense system for their personal properties and luxuries. What about human trafficking? The the perpetrators of human trafficking. So it turns out that underneath it all, in humanity despite lots of easygoing things that we like to have in our culture people fundamentally believe in accountability for human life this week I've been listening to the one of the top atheist philosophers on YouTube in the world today his name is Sam Harris and when put to the test he believes in moral principles and accountability and he's an atheist So it turns out that in humanity, the issue of accountability and judgment for how we live our lives is hardwired into how we live and how we think. And it's with that thought that I want to come to the biblical text and to religion. And here's a thought. All world religions believe in the ongoing consequences in future existences of what we do in this life. Not least the monotheistic religions. Judaism, Islam and Christianity all have a doctrine of final judgment built into their theology. You talk to a Muslim, every Muslim knows there's a final judgment. You talk to a Jew, every Jew, every who believes in the uh, Jewish scriptures believes in a final judgment. Every Christian tradition until very, very recently believes in a final judgment. And all, most of the people that you relate to, and I relate to, are not pure atheists. We still have the legacy of Christianity in our culture, don't we? And people generally believe the following. I wonder if you can relate to this. Well, if there's a God, and there probably is, but I'm not entirely sure... Then I hope I've done enough to get through on the final day, through the pearly gates, into his, into his salvation. Have you heard people say that to you, a word to that fate? That is a prevailing subconscious feeling in our culture. Very few people, fundamentally, are committed atheists and say, load of rubbish. Most people are not sure. And they know if there's a God there'll be accountability. And they view God's dealing with them along the lines of the scales that I've put up on the screen here. And they hope that their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. It is Amazing how many people when push comes to shove that's actually what they believe the nominally religious westerners are hoping that they will get through that judgment if a God exists our starting point for this doctrine must be the person of Jesus Christ What did he say? Well, I've had the experience in the last few years of living very closely with the gospel texts, speaking into a video camera, 184 messages based on every single gospel text for the video project I'm developing, and it's been a very salutary experience because I've seen things that are uncomfortable and challenging. And one of the things I've seen is the number of times Jesus warns people, don't ignore the message of salvation. He warns them very seriously. Take the narrow road to life, not the wide road to destruction. He even on one occasion likened eternal judgment to a place called Gehenna which is a valley outside the city of Jerusalem you can go there today the modern Israelis have turned it into a park but for many centuries it was the rubbish dump for the city and it was in the time of Jesus the rubbish dump and he said you're going to end up in the rubbish dump if you don't respond to the message given to you where the worm does not die And the fire is not quenched. And in many other ways, Jesus warned, especially in his parables, that there are consequences for not responding to the message of salvation that he was bringing. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian apologist, said, if you want to understand eternal judgment and the reality that that brings, don't start with Paul Don't start in the Old Testament. Start with Jesus because here are the most somber warnings anywhere. From he who loved us so much that he died for us. He warned us about ignoring his salvation. So with these words of introduction I come to the passage that defines this doctrine most clearly. It's in Revelation chapter 20 and it's only five or six verses but this is a well-known passage and i want to read this to you revelation 20 verses 11 to 15 the context here is that the writer john is in a visionary mode he has seen all sorts of visions about the future and the immediate context of this section is that he saw in revelation chapter 19 a vision of the second coming of jesus And he saw a vision subsequent to that of the church gathered together in what we might call the Messianic Age. He saw a vision of the judgment of Satan and uh, all his minions. And all those things have taken place just before this text appears. And after this text comes the final vision of a new heaven and a new earth, which I'm going to speak on next week. So this is placed very clearly at the end of time. It's a literal reality using metaphorical language in part because it's the only language John had to express the realities that were being described. And he wrote this. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened another book was opened which is the book of life the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. John had a vision, and the throne expresses authority. The fact that it's great expresses supreme authority. The fact that it's white symbolizes the holiness and the power of the authority that's represented by the throne, and the throne is a fundamental uh, metaphor of the authority and power of the living God throughout the book of Revelation. And someone was sitting on it, unnamed, but elsewhere in the New Testament, it is unambiguous that God the Father has given to his Son, Jesus, the authority to be the judge of mankind. There are numerous references in the New Testament to the fact that it's Jesus who has been given the authority to judge For example, Acts 10 verse 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he's the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So this is a very awesome scene that John sees. He sees this tremendous sign of authority. The throne of God and Christ himself seated. This is really remarkable. Christ who made himself nothing. Christ, who was willing to be humiliated at the hands of man. Christ, who was sent out of pure love to humanity, to redeem us, and who was willing to pay the ultimate price, is now exalted to such astonishing glory that he becomes not only the saviour, but also the judge. And so it is, in my understanding of the text, that mankind will face Jesus Christ, whether they believed in him or not. We will face him on that day. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and there was no place for them. What does this metaphorical language tell us? It tells us that this moment of judgment is also the beginning of the cleansing of the whole of the created order because we're going to see in the following verses which we'll deal with next week that immediately after this judgment comes a new heaven and a new earth in which there is no sin, no pain, no suffering, no rebellion against the Saviour, the redemption of beauty and creation, as we'll describe next week, is coming. But in order to get to that point, there has to be a cleansing. Earth and heaven fled away. It'll return as a new heaven and a new earth. And there stood the dead. Verse 12. Here are the defendants: the dead, great and small. Standing before the throne, who are these people? All of humanity, including Christians. It's hard to imagine the scene. These realities stretch our imagination almost to breaking point. But that doesn't mean they aren't real. It means we don't have enough information to understand how real they are and how their reality will be worked out the dead and here's an interesting point great and small our world is built on hierarchy and power and the great love to be great they love to be rich, they love to be famous they love to wield power over other people sometimes they do it well, sometimes they do it malevolently But our world is filled with social division and economic division and racial division and hierarchies. It's everywhere in every single culture and there is only one moment when those hierarchies will crumble and that is this moment in history in which I could stand before Christ next to a millionaire and he wouldn't appear to be a millionaire because his millions aren't there. I could stand next to a pauper who had nothing in this life but trusted Christ and she'd be equal to me. Any privileges I've had in this life would be insignificant, utterly irrelevant. God will equal out the hierarchies and power structures of this world. And those who spent their lives running from God and running from authority and hiding in dark places and running to other countries and seeking eva- evading the law and the truth and accountability will be no longer be able to run there will be no place to run there'll be no absentees there'll be no people who got who got stuck on the train mysteriously on the way to the Day of Judgment and didn't quite make it. You know those mysterious absentees in life who really should be there for something but they're not there and you know why they're not there? It's because they don't want to be there. None of that in the face of the majestic authority of Jesus Christ and His Father. And in the presence of the all-seeing Holy Spirit The dead, great and small, and then, amazingly, and mysteriously, books are opened—a reference to a record of our lives. There's never been a trial in human history where all the evidence has been available and fully presented without exception, but it'll all be different on this trial. Because no evidence will be withheld. No secrets will remain secret. No dark places will remain in the dark. Because God knows everything. And as I'm speaking to you now, I want you to get a feel. I've been praying that we get a feel for the greatness of our God. He really does know everything. It'll be a time of great distress. But then there's the book of life. There's another book. There's the Lamb's book of life. And this book, it turns out, is not filled with information and records. It's filled with names. Now we're in an amazingly different world. Your record and the detail of everything you did or didn't do isn't going to be written down in a book. If you're in Christ, the only thing about you that's going to be written down is your name. That's incredible, isn't it? Just your name. What happened to the record? Wiped away on the cross. The power of the cross. He doesn't have to look through the record and say, how many commandments did this this guy keep? He doesn't have to say to the angels, did that guy bother turning up to church down there in Shrewsbury all those years? The transaction was done on Calvary. And the transaction applied to you at the time that you believed in Christ. And it's at that moment, if we can appropriate chronology to this eternal reality, which I think we can do up to a point, it's at that moment that your name is written in the book of life. And do you know what the other side of the coin is for that? Paul says, "When you believe, you receive a deposit of the Holy Spirit." That's our human experience. We never saw anybody write the name. Have you ever seen anyone write the name of the book of life? Do you happen to know your name is there from just some some angel tell you? We don't know. We haven't seen the book. But what we do know is the Holy Spirit lives in here. A deposit guaranteeing what is to come. But those outside Christ have missed their opportunity and are separated eternally from the living God. It's a somber reality. But I would be deceiving you if I ducked this issue. The lake of fire is the place of punishment. Originally intended for Satan and the demons, according to Matthew 25:41, but also used of human judgment, judgment of humans. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is as if to say no more death. There's going to be no more death in the future. This is a wonderful reality in the new heaven and the new earth. No more death. Now we face death all the time. Our church has faced it twice this week. It's a painful human reality. We can't get away from it. One of the great things about what happens at this moment is death comes to an end. Those who live through the judgment live eternally without fear of decline or death or disease or illness and the lake of fire is known as the second death death here refers to primarily separation it's a separation from the living God that is at stake now of course one passage doesn't answer every question what about those who were before Christ? Can they be saved? Yes, through faith in the revelation they had at the time. The Old Testament and Hebrews 11 are very clear about that. What about those people who are outside the message of the gospel? We can't have any clear assurance of that, but we do know from history and even from the Bible that remarkable salvations occur outside the immediate. A structure of the church for example Melchizedek in Genesis 14 countless stories throughout history but ultimately it's all through Christ what about deathbed salvation you may be thinking well yes it does happen sometimes I've seen it happen what about really good people well it appears from the text here that human goodness is never the criteria of salvation. There is only one criteria. Christ's death for us. And many religious people have been down the track of thinking, I've just got to do better, I've got to do better, I've got to get there somehow, I've got to be good, I've got to be better, and lost sight of the cross. We cannot lose sight of the centrality of the cross. It's the cross that leads us to have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. Some people have asked, do we choose judgment or does God judge us? And in a sense, both are true. He's the judge, of course. But C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller and other writers have pointed out that God does not change the human decision to live independently of him. If we make that decision, it will carry on. And so there is a sense in which there is human choice involved as well as God's decision. If you're interested in developing that, you might want to read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, a brilliant explanation of that particular point. And so I turn in conclusion to a couple of verses from Hebrews. Hebrews 9, I put 8 on the screen by mistake. Hebrews 9. 26 to 28 speaking of Christ but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he'll appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 45 years ago I gave my life to Christ and I remember that inner witness of forgiveness of sins It's never left me from that day to this but it has to be renewed by worship to worship and focus on what Christ has done for us is the antidote to all the misapprehensions we can have about this life and the next life. As I finished writing this talk on Tuesday afternoon at about 3 o'clock, I received a text. Literally, the moment I finished writing it. And the text was from the daughter of Hazel Davy to say... She's died. She came into our church about 25 plus years ago and gave her life to Christ. And I went to the house. I arrived before the undertakers. I saw Hazel lying there and spoke to the family and friends. Literally at the moment that I finished the talk. And I thank God that we've been able to witness to her and bring her through to salvation. Then the next morning, Wednesday morning, I received an email from the squash club I'm part of to say that tragically on that evening, that same Tuesday, I finished the talk in the afternoon. Hazel died almost the moment I finished the talk. And on the Tuesday evening, one of my very close friends dropped dead on the squash court, A man in his 70s with a heart condition, he died shortly after that I received a phone call very good friend of mine I'd witnessed to him much i prayed for him when he was sick we'd had many profound conversations and he'd done a deal with me five years ago roughly he said when I die will you take the funeral so I received a phone call the next day from the family visited the family and I will be conducting that funeral all on the same day. And it makes me realise that in the Western world we try to avoid talking about death and eternity. It still remains the great taboo. But for Christians we should be clear. We should be clear for ourselves But we should be clear that we are calling people to salvation with a sense of importance. Giving our testimony, sharing our lives, taking the opportunities we had. And when this guy died, I was very moved, very emotional, I have to admit, I still am now. But I am very grateful for the conversations we had. And our responsibility in the knowledge of all these things is not only to thank God for our salvation but to share our faith and to pray for others and to ask Christ to reveal himself to more and more people so that on that day there'll be more people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And if you believe in Christ, whatever the ups and downs of your life, whatever you're going through, whatever faults and failures have taken place in your life, if your faith is genuine, your name is written. And as we think of this topic, it should renew our faith, it should strengthen our discipleship, strengthen our prayer life, strengthen our love for other people. That we reach out to them in any way that we can. Let's stand and the musicians, please come. Just pause for a moment. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he'll appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Lord, we thank you for these words.